Today, inshallah, we'll finish the book, The Heirs of the Prophets by Ibn Rajab, um, which is a great accomplishment, alhamdulillah. That's why I'm dressed up special for today. Because it's, it's, it's actually, uh, it's a great thing when you finish a text. It's a, it's a great blessing and it's a, um, something to be very happy about, something to feel joyous about, something to feel like, alhamdulillah, we accomplished something. And inshallah, it's one of many books that we read. Um, for anyone who's coming for the first time, we've been reading The Heirs of the Prophets by Ibn Rajab and Hanbali. Um, it's, uh, Ibn Rajab has a set of essays that he's written on a number of different topics. He's um, a middle kind of period scholar about 600, 700 years ago. And uh, this is one, his commentary on one hadith of the Prophet them. A hadith that emphasizes the importance of seeking knowledge and really having an understanding of what that means and what that entails and the benefit and blessing of doing that. So we spent the last eight sessions on this text and alhamdulillah today inshallah we're on the ninth session and we'll finish. And then starting from next week, we'll begin a new text. And uh, as we've said before, we prefer to teach out of text when we can because that way these can become part of our library, you know? You study a text, you buy the book, it becomes part of your home library. Everyone should have a home library uh, of Islamic text. It doesn't have to be huge, but you know, at least a, a shelf or two of different books on Islam that we've studied. And if we, if we get the text and we take notes in it, and you know, then our children can inherit it from us, and our children's children, inshallah, and, and uh, we can teach it to others, and inshallah, it'll be a source of benefit for ourselves and others. So. Uh, this is the heirs of the prophet. Starting from next week, we'll start a new text. And I forgot to bring it. Um, I don't remember what it's translated as. I think it's. Uh, let me see if I can find it real quick so I can tell you. It's called Etiquettes of Companionship. Etiquettes of Companionship, and it's written by Imam Sharani. Sharani. Sharani is not Sharawi. <laughs> People hear Sharani, they think Sharawi. It's not it's not Sheikh Sharawi. Imam Sharani. It's also from Egypt, but you know, similar period to Ibn Rajab. Etiquettes of companionship. This was actually I wanna say this was the first text that I taught at the Majlis in Orange County when we had a space. So there was there was a period before we had a space, but when we got the space I think this was the first text that we taught, but it was in the period where we weren't recording things. So, alhamdulillah, now we're here in a new space and have an opportunity to teach it again and to record it. And I've taught it uh, in another place as well, so at least two times now I've taught it. Uh, it's a very interesting text. You know, it's a very interesting text. Part of what we're doing when we read these texts and we do these things is we're trying to deepen our understanding of our intellectual tradition Sometimes that means doing a lot of reprogramming. So, you know, sometimes there's things that we hear in, in America, for example, and we think like, oh, that's just an American thing. It's not, it's not a Muslim thing. And uh, Imam Sharani teaches us that it's, it's not quite that way. You know, his book is very beautiful, The Etiquettes of Companionship. Inshallah, it will be a good 
foundation for the community here. But he'll say things like, you, you hate the sin and not the sinner. You know, it's a very like Western thing. People who imagine it as a very Western thing. And they're like, no, we have to hate things for the sake of Allah. And they get, you know, like very uh, strange about stuff. And he'll say it. And he gives you his reasoning. And so the book is basically a set of etiquettes of how to deal with one another. And inshallah, you know, we'll start that from next week. And the week after that, we'll have off because we'll have the camp. Then we'll return, inshallah. So let's start here so we can finish. Chapter 9. قال المصنف رحمه الله تعالى ونفر الله وياه بيعلمه في دارين أمين. It's called chapter nine, a parable. A parable. So he says the following. <coughs> we now present a parable regarding the states of humanity in responding to the Prophet Muhammad's call, sallallahu Their states are many. One who is a sincere striver. One who is moderate. The third person is the the third a person who oppresses his soul. In showing how each group responds, this parable also reveals the virtue of righteous scholars over all other people. So this is, uh, uh, this is uh, in reference to a verse, right? There's a verse that mentions that from the, from the people, those who are sabiq and khairat, the one who is first to do good deeds. The second category is the one who is muqtasid, they're kind of like in between. And the third is the one who is dhanimunni nafsi, the one who oppresses themselves. So what he's referring to here is it's a, he's referring to a particular verse from the Quran. So he says, A prophet is like a messenger who comes from a land belonging to a most magnificent king. He delivers the king's message to the rest of the lands. His fidelity to the message is manifest. The content of the message is as follows. There is no goodness as perfect as the king's goodness, no justice as complete as his justice, and no authority as firm as his authority. It is the king's desire that all of his subjects come to reside in his land. Whoever comes to him with a good record, he will reward him with the best of rewards. Whoever comes to him with an evil record, he will severely punish him. He will inform his subjects of all that they have done, good or bad. The messenger thus travels to the far reaches of the kingdom, admonishing the inhabitants of those lands to prepare for the journey. He warns them of the imminent destruction of every parcel of land except the king's. He dispatches assistance to prod the wretched laggards who delay their preparation. He continuously describes fine attributes of this king, his beauty, perfection, majesty, and generosity. The people are divided into many groups based on their response to this messenger. Among them is one who believes him forthright. His only concern is seeking out what this king loves from his subjects to ensure that when he sets off toward the king, he has an abundance of those things. He occupies himself with purification and calling on others as best as he could to prepare for the journey. He similarly asked about what the king loathes and then avoids it and enjoins others to shun it as well. His greatest concern is, about asking, is asking about the attributes of the king, his greatness and generosity, all of which increases his love for the king, his exaltation of him and his deep yearning to meet him. He eventually travels to the king bringing as many gifts most precious and beloved things imaginable. His journey to the kingdom occurs as part of a grand procession. He knows from the messenger's instructions the most direct route to the king and the best provisions for the journey. Such is a description of the righteous scholars who are well guided and who guide others to the path of Allah. They come to the king as an absentee returning to his people. They await him with eager anticipation and the most earnest longing. So this is the first category. It's the first category. So, you know, one of the things to reflect upon is how tremendous is the blessing of guidance 
and how important it really is to try to get the best of that guidance and, and, and to really cling on to it and to be sincere to it and to recognize that that is what really uh, distinguishes things that are around us. You know, uh, we live actually in a time of tremendous chaos in many ways. You know, like if you imagine, even most of us don't have to imagine. Most of us remember even 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it wasn't as chaotic. You know, you have your little life, you do your thing, you go to your job, you look at your kids, try to take care of them, you have your family. You might have like the people you know at the grocery store and some relatives, and you're pretty much done. <laughs> you know, like. The way, the way I grew up at least, like we went to the same, my mom is a very systematic person. So we went to the same grocery store at the same time every single week for like 15 years. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the way life was. And so you know the people who work at that hour, you know the people who are there, you talk to them. People in your neighborhood, you know them because you play in the soccer league together. You know, so you play in the soccer league and you know like the coach of that team, he lives up the street and this person you played with, they live over there. and. You know, these people live over here, and so and that was our life, you know. And the most chaos you might get is like watching family ties on TV or something. And like, you know, that was pretty much it, if anyone remembers these shows. But, and still, there's things that you're like, okay, I don't want to follow that. I, I should do this, I shouldn't do that, and so on. But it's not the same level of chaos that we have now, you know. The, the level of information, the level of ideas, the level of manipulation. Uh, because all of these things are meant to manipulate us, right? Like the whole, the whole point of TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all, the whole point of it is to sell you something. So the whole point of it is to manipulate you. So there's a whole, all kinds of information is coming to result in this manipulation. And there's a lot of chaos in all of it, right? So then sometimes uh, you, you have to ask ourselves like, okay, so what is, what is the true guidance? And that's a great blessing, like to have a prophet and to be able to say this is the messenger of God I mean really to say like if you step back you know to be able to say first of all that all of this doesn't have no purpose it's not without purpose all of these beautiful trees and all of the scenery and all of the everything that's in existence and all of all of these things not without purpose it's not just like you know you go about the day the way the cattle go about the day and the cattle walk around a little bit and then they need to eat so they eat and then they walk around a little bit and they eat <laughs> it's pretty much <laughs> it's we don't we're not cattle allah says about cattle you know people who disbelieve he says that people who disbelieve they're like cattle but they're even worse than that actually they're even more misguided and it's not to like hate on other people it's not it's not to be like oh you know it's because they're the disbelievers and we hate them that's not the idea the idea is to recognize the value of belief and disbelief. The value of knowing that a path is true and a path is good. And to know that there's reward, right? Because sometimes we know that something is good and something is right. But it's hard to do it. Because nobody else does it. Or people think that you're weird if you do it. Or you have a material loss because you did it. You know, there's a lot of things that we could do that... People, the people who don't believe in Allah, they look at you and think you're crazy, right? Like, why would you do that? Why would you give this money? Why would you do that? Why would you make this choice? Why would you do all of these things? And the, the thing in the end is that I believe that Allah will reward me for this. And there's 
truth, the, the, so the truth, the clarity of that is extremely important. And to be able to say like, you know what? I have a choice right now. Am I going to be patient with this person or am I not? So no, if I, I choose one way, this is the correct way. And the other way is not correct. I could treat people correctly, nicely, and properly, and so on. this is the correct way to do things. Like so, to have my point is to have guidance is actually a big deal. So you have this parable now of the king. The person responds to the call of the king, says, "Okay, you know, actually, you're right. This is, I do want to do that, and I want to live my way. I want to live my life in a way that is pleasing to the king, and you know, manic. And I'm going to prepare everything for that. And in doing so, everything will become clear." <clears throat> I'll be able to tell what deserves attention, what doesn't deserve attention. I'll be able to tell what's important and what's not important. But only in the mizan, only in the scale of the divine revelation. Only in the scale of the way of the prophets. So it's the prophets that give us that, you know, they give us that, that balance, they give us that ability to really make sense of these things. So this person, then they recognize that and they accept that and they go to the king. Another group is composed of those obsessed with their own preparation. They do not concern themselves with others. This is the description of the ordinary devout worshippers. They know what is beneficial and act, on, and act on the basis of that knowledge. So the first group is the people who went, and they knew it was good for them, so they call other people to come too. They call other people to come. They try to help other people, so on and so forth, and they go. And the second category is the one who, they accept the truth of the call, but they just worry about themselves. Yeah. And... Um, you know, one of the struggles of, not struggles, but one of the, um, opportunities of Iman, one of the opportunities of belief is to give precedence to the unseen over the seen. And give precedence to what Allah does, Allah does over what we do. It's very important, you know, because uh, we have to be working in the unseen actually you know, We do all of the things that we do in the scene But there has to be work that we're doing in the unseen So they'll talk about for example You have the importance of When you make dua for someone else and they don't know Then the angel comes right, From the hadith of the Prophet When you make dua for your brother or sister And they don't know about it Then the angel comes and they say Amin and the same for you So when you make dua for someone else You're doing work in the unseen actually and that work in the unseen helps you too. So I could just make dua for myself, and that's a level of work in the unseen. Or I could make dua for everyone else, and it actually is better. Um, the investment is stronger. You know? Or, you know, uh, as you said before, like when you have something to do, there's material means that we take for the various things that we do, and there's spiritual means that we can take for the various things that we do. You know, uh, we can make dua for it, we can give charity, you know, but part of the etiquette of even asking for things from the Prophet them was that the companions, they would go and give charity before they ask. So, you know, uh, you know, before you come to speak with the Prophet them they go and they give a little bit of charity. So, yeah, even you're talking to the Prophet them it's obviously major, right? But the work that's happening in the unseen before you do that is you give a little bit of charity. And Allah gives aid, right? And then you come to the Prophet's eyes and then you ask for whatever you're going to ask for. So there's this interaction always happening between the seen and the unseen. 
between the spiritual realm and the material realm. And we want them to work together. Right? We want them to work together so that things can be proper and things can be beautiful and things can be amazing. And so uh, the person who just worries about themselves, they lost something major. They lost something major. Which is what? Which is that the Prophet said, that Allah is in the aid of the servant as long as the servant is in the aid of their brother or sister. So now I could serve myself and I serve myself. Or I can serve my brother or my sister and Allah serves me in a sense. You know, don't misunderstand it. Allah helps me. Maybe it's a better word. Allah will help me. Allah will support me. Allah will aid me. Right? So this is like, uh, I've told you before the story that when we were studying, especially in the beginning of our studies, we had to move a lot. You know, like you move into an apartment, the lease runs out, or like something happens, you have to change, you move, move, move. So one time when we were moving, um, Alhamdulillah was earlier in our studies, so the books hadn't accumulated yet. It was an easier move. So we had to move a little bit, and uh, one of the brothers had come, to help <coughs> and alhamdulillah we were around people who were very serious about their studies so like you know like for example in our group of people who were studying there were no breaks during the week like the one break that people took was on Thursday night all of the Americans would go and get dinner together and that was it like the rest of the week you work you study you study you study right so like asking someone to come help you move was a big ask so I'm gonna ask him to take two three hours out of his study he left his home, he left his family, all these things, you know, like it's a big deal. This is how we were very extreme. So uh, the brother comes and we're walking down the stairs and we're carrying things. And I told him, I'm sorry that, uh, you know, I'm sorry to take you away from your studies to come and help us and so on. And he said to me, just very, you know, there was no like, you know, sometimes people have tekelluf in the things that they're saying, you know, like they have uh, <coughs> They're like trying to say something religious almost, you know? They're <laughs> like trying to say something that's spiritual or whatever. But sometimes it just comes naturally, you know? He's just very naturally, he says, He says, hey, what are you talking about? If we don't help our brother when he needs help, how is Allah going to help us in our studies? It was very like, you know, and we're just walking down the stairs and then we keep going, like take the stuff wherever, you know, someone's coming with the truck or whatever else it is. And, but this is the difference. So the person who does things only for themselves, this is a great problem in society right now, right? It's, I mean, American society in general has a trajectory towards individualism, but where we're at right now is even far greater than what it was even 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So it's very like I'm going to do for myself, and I'm only going to worry about myself, and I'm not going to worry about anyone else, and I just have to worry about myself. And you know, uh, But there's a difference between the one who only worries about themselves and the one who takes care of other people and helps other people and supports them. So another group is only obsessed with their own preparation. They don't concern themselves with others. This is the description of the ordinary devout worshippers. They know what is beneficial and act on the basis of that knowledge. So mashallah, they know what is good, they do it. They go and they do their worship, they go and they, all these other things. But look, by the way, this is not like a foreign concept. This is the sunnah of the Prophet Believe it was Ibn Abbas, believe it was, who was in the masjid, masjid Nabawi. Prophet's masjid making i'tikaf. Okay, this is like pretty high level spiritual practice, right? So he's in the masjid of the Prophet and he's making spiritual retreat. He's isolated himself in the masjid 
to worship, to make dua, to read Quran, so on and so forth. A man came to him and told him about a situation that he had. You know, I have such and such situation, I have this issue, whatever. So he says, okay. And he gets up and he starts to walk out of the masjid. The guy was like, wait, I wasn't telling you to like come right now. I mean, you're in Atikaf, aren't you? Like, it's okay, you can stay there. And he said, I heard the Prophet them say that to go and make effort to help your brother or sister in the thing that they need help with is better than i'tikaf in this masjid of mine for 10 years. So he got up out of his worship and he went straight out of the masjid to help the person who was in need. All right, so this is not like some foreign concept. This is, this, this is actually Islam. Right? Another group is made up of those who behave as if they are included among the sincere people, as if their intention is to prepare for the journey. In reality, though, their intention is to occupy their condemned homeland. <laughs> this group represents the scholars and worshippers who show off their deeds, hoping to gain some temporal benefit. They are in the worst of states when they ultimately appear before the king. It will be said to them, Seek the reward of your actions from the very ones you perform them for. You will have nothing here with us. So this group now is people who, thank you, who look like they're doing something for someone else, or for, for Allah. They're trying to, they look like they're answering to the, to the request of the king, but in reality they're not. You know, so they're just doing whatever they're doing for their position, for their power, to be respected, um, to be appreciated, to be pointed at, all of these other kinds of things. And that's not actually what they're doing. But what's said to them in the end is seek the reward from your actions from the ones that you sought the reward from, which wasn't us. Which is the hadith of the Prophet them about three people who will be thrown into hellfire, right? One of them is the person who fought in the sake of God. And they will come before God and they'll say, why did you fight for the sake of God? And they'll say, I fought so that your name could be elevated a lot. They'll say, no, you didn't. You fought so that people would say that you were brave. And they said it, so you got what you wanted, so you get nothing from me, you go to that. And the next person will come, and they're a person of knowledge, or they're a reciter of the Qur'an in different narrations. They're pretty much the same thing, especially in their early usage. Um, and the same thing will happen. Say, why did you do this? So, say, so that I could teach the people your religion. And Allah will say, you, you know, you did it so that people would say that you were knowledgeable. You did it so that people would say that you recite Qur'an beautifully or whatever else it might be and you got what you wanted so you can go to hell and then the third group of people is those who give charity they'll be asked why did you do this and they'll say well we did it to help people to support your causes Allah and Allah will tell them no you did it so that people would say that you're generous and they said it so you don't have any reward it's the same idea Another group consists of those who understand the messenger's dictates but are overcome with laziness and do not themselves prepare for the journey, neglecting what the king loves and indulging in what he dislikes. These are the scholars who fail to act on their knowledge. They are, the, they are on the precipice of destruction. Though they benefit others with their knowledge and their description of the path, their students, the, uh, the path, their students undertake the journey and are saved, leaving their teachers to be destroyed. Another group consists of those who understand the messenger's dictates but are overcome with laziness and do not themselves prepare for the journey, neglecting what the king loves and indulging in what he dislikes. These are the scholars who fail to act on their knowledge. They are on the precipice of destruction. 
Though they benefit others with their knowledge and their description of the path, their students undertake the journey and are saved, leaving their teachers behind to be destroyed. Sometimes, you know the idea in America we say that someone, they uh, miss the forest for the trees. They miss the forest for the trees. So sometimes what we do is we get so interested in and um, overwhelmed with talking about the path. You know, the path being Islam, essentially. What is the path to Allah? The path to Allah is Islam. So we talk about the path. We talk about theology and we talk about law and we talk about hadith and we talk about all of these things. And we forget the reality is, what's the point? The point is to take the path. And the point, the point is not just to talk about it. Um, the point is to take the path. That's why in, in Islamic spirituality they always say, uh, the path is not for the one who goes first. The path is for the one who is truthful and honest, who's sincere to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not about like, oh, you know, this person they've been studying for 20 years, this person they've been spending time with this shaykh for 30 years, whatever else it might be. You know, it, could be it could be that someone just made tawbah yesterday. And they're so sincere and they're so honest that they already went further on the path. Right? But the point is not to talk about the path. The point is to take the path. So maybe we get the path right. And may we actually take it. Both are important. We have to get it right and we have to take it. There is yet another group that believes the messenger's call but fails to receive direction from him. SubhanAllah. This, this is uh, uh, at the risk of sounding too negative. This to me is actually the majority of the Muslims. Uh, the majority, I should say. Majority of the religious Muslims, <laughs> Muslims who like care about Islam, the majority of them are in this camp. Actually, there's yet another group that believes the messenger's call but fail to receive direction from him. These people fail to learn the details of the king's likes and dislikes. They undertake the journey guideless, and thus hurl themselves into roads rife with difficulties, horrors, wastelands, and disease. Most of them either perish or stray from the path, never reaching the king. They are ignorant believers acting without knowledge. I shouldn't say it's most of them, but I would say that this happens. It happens that people are really sincere, but they don't really stop long enough to figure out if their sincerity is being put in the right place. Right, so again, it's the two issues that always come together. I have to be sincere with the law, and I have to do what's right. And if one of them is off, it's a problem. You know, person is not, they're doing what's right, but they're not sincere, it's a problem. It's also a problem if they're very sincere, but they're not doing things right. You know? um, and there's, of course, very extreme examples of that, like extremism. Extremism is usually actually a very extreme example of that. People think they're doing something for Allah, but they're doing something actually very opposite. 
they think like, oh, I'm doing this, and this is right, and this is the cause, and we have to do this and that, but they're totally off, right? So they think what they're doing is right, but it's not right. And then other, but other times there's things that are more, you know, subtle than that. Like people, everyone wants to do something, everyone wants to feel meaningful, everyone wants to feel like they're doing something useful, right? So they're just active, 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 but they're not really thinking about, like, am I doing this right? And, um... You know, I remember Ghazali would say that knowledge without action is vanity. Knowledge without action is vanity. And action without knowledge is insanity. Knowledge without action is vanity. And action without knowledge is insanity. Because, you know, spend your whole life doing something, you don't know if you're doing it right. SubhanAllah. Yet another group is made up of those who completely ignore the messenger. They continue with their everyday routine as if their homeland is not on the verge of annihilation. Some of them belie the messenger. Others can confirm him with their speech while ignoring his teachings. Uh, they are the generality of humanity, the masses who reject divine guidance and reject worship. Their ranks include the disbelievers, hypocrites, and rebellious fools who oppress and wrong their own souls. They feel that the caller has forced them onto the path, expelled them from their homeland, and unjustly summoned them before their king. They come before him as a rebellious slave comes before his angry master. If you consider these divisions, you will not find any group more honored or closer to the king than the righteous scholars. They are the best of humanity after the messengers made the peace and blessings of Allah be upon them all. And chapter 10, last chapter. Heirs of the Prophets. As for the Prophet's saying, the scholars are the heirs of the Prophets. This means that they inherit the knowledge that the Prophets taught. They succeed the Prophets in their communities in the sense of calling people to Allah and His obedience, prohibiting rebellion against Allah and defending His religion. Hassan al-Basri attributes the following saying to the Prophet Who is Hassan al-Basri? Just two words. Who is, who is he? Anyone? He's, we say he's from the senior Tabi'in. He's from the senior Tabi'in. He's from the most prominent among the students of the companions of the Prophet top, top tier after the companions that the Prophet said may the mercy of Allah be on my successors the companions asked O Messenger of Allah who are your successors he said those who revive and teach my sunnah after my passing a similar hadith is related by Ali from the Prophet the scholars occupy the position of the prophets in a noble station between Allah and humanity. This is as Ibn al-Munqadir has said, truly the scholars are between Allah and humanity. Therefore, be careful how you approach them. These statements, I think, are hard for us. We, we've been programmed differently. And we've had some bad experiences or maybe experiences that don't inspire confidence. And so it's hard to understand this. Right? But again, uh, try to abstract it a little bit. If you've had experiences don't, that don't inspire this, try to abstract it. Imagine someone who actually does what they're supposed to do, actually carries the way of the Prophet in which case, they are between Allah and humanity. So people are like, oh, but I have a direct connection to Allah. Do you? You do, of course. But do you really, like, you do have, your direct connection to Allah is through the Prophet that's what we say, La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The one who taught us how to deal with Allah is the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So it's not that like, yeah, we have our direct connection, but there's, uh, 
ways to do that. And so he's saying that the, the heirs of the prophets are these people. Sufyan ibn Uyayna ibn Munkadir is a companion, by the way, so it's not like someone, this isn't uh, like um, some deviant sort of understanding, right? Sufyan ibn Uyayna again from the generation of Mujtahid Imams, like he's a major figure, said, the greatest people in rank are those who stand between Allah and humanity, the prophets and the scholars. Sahih ibn Abdullah said, whoever wants to look at the gatherings of the prophets, let him look at the gatherings of the scholars. Someone asked, what do you say about a man who takes an oath against his wife to divorce her based on some condition? The unlearned replies, his wife is divorced. Someone else comes forward with the same question. A discerning man responds, he should break this type of oath. This sort of question should only be directed to a prophet or a scholar. So this is a very important action. Right? This is the issue. The issue is that some of these questions that people ask, have major consequences in their lives. Right? Not every question is a simple question. Not every question is like, should I put my hands underneath my belly button or on my stomach when I'm praying? Or not every question is like, do I start prayer and I say Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim out loud or do I say it to myself? These are easy questions in a sense. Some of these questions are very difficult. Some questions have major consequences, you know? Some questions are involving hundreds of thousands of dollars. Some questions are involving someone's freedom, for example. You know, like, so, he says these should be asked to people of knowledge. Noble dreams tell the exalted station of the scholars. A pious woman during the time of Hassan al-Basri dreamed that she was seeking a religious verdict concerning extramenstrual bleeding, istihada. It was said to her, your ser- you search for a verdict while Hassan is in your midst holding the seal of Jibreel, This indicates that Hassan inherited the wisdom vouchsafed by angel Jibreel. This is known as the seal of Jibreel. Don't ask me. I don't know what that is. It's interesting. Someone saw the Prophet ﷺ in a dream and said to him, O Messenger of Allah, we are at odds between Imam Malik and Layth. Which of them is more knowledgeable? The Prophet ﷺ said, Malik is the heir of my knowledge. Malik is the heir of my knowledge. Layth is a huge figure also. Layth ibn Sa'd, he's buried in Egypt. Um, they say, it was said about Layth that he was afqah min al-shafi'i. That he was even more knowledgeable than al-shafi'i. Uh, but his students didn't serve him and so his madhab didn't last. Basically the madhabs that last were the ones that the students served, that served the imam. Right? They preserved the knowledge of the imam, they worked through it. They, so there were many people in that period, their knowledge didn't remain because their students didn't serve him. And of course there's a problem in that. Uh, Another person dreamed that the Prophet was sitting in the masjid in the middle of an assembly while Imam Malik was standing before him. In front of the Prophet was a container of musk. He took it and gave it to Imam Malik, who then distributed it to the assembly. This was interpreted to mean that Imam Malik was blessed with knowledge and strictly adhered to the sunnah of the Prophet Someone was talking about the majlis recently. This came back to me. They indirectly said, Oh yeah, the majlis, you know, they're okay and stuff, but like, I'm, I'm not really sure, I don't know if they really follow the sunnah. I was like, I would be that. 
that's not true. Fudayl ibn Yad saw the Prophet in his dream sitting down and beside him was a gap. Fudayl advanced to sit there. The Prophet said to him, this is the seat of Abu Ishaq al-Fazari. One of those gathered asked, which of the two is better? The Prophet said, Fudayl was a man who benefited himself with his devotions and Abu Ishaq was a man who benefited the public with his knowledge. This indicated that the latter was a scholar whose knowledge benefited other people. Fudayl was a devout worshiper whose benefit was confined to himself. The scholars will intercede on behalf of the believers after the intercession of the prophets. Oh my God, I have to read faster. Okay, I'm just going to go. The scholars will intercede on behalf of the believers after the intercession of the prophets, as Tirmidhi relates from Uthman, an, a statement of the Prophet On the day of judgment, the prophets will intercede, then the scholars, then the martyrs. Malik ibn Dinar said, I have heard that it will be said to the devout on the day of judgment, enter paradise, while it will be said to the scholar, rise and intercede. This narration, however, is related from Abu Huraira with a very weak chain. So he specifically mentions that this time. The scholars will be a proof at the gathering station, a mahshar, during the tumult of the day of judgment. The people gathered there will think they o- that they only stayed in their graves a brief time. The scholars will make it clear that the truth is to the contrary. Allah the Exalted says, on the day that the hour is established, the criminal transgressors will swear that they only tarried a brief time. Thus were they deluded from the truth. Whereas those given knowledge and faith will say, You tarried in accordance to Allah's book of decree until the day of resurrection. The scholars will also comment on the debasement of the idolaters on the day of judgment. As Allah says, On the day of resurrection, you will debase the idolaters and say, Where are my partner gods that you used to dispute about? Those given knowledge will say, Debasement and evil this day are upon those who reject faith. It has been related from the Prophet ﷺ, people will need scholars in paradise just as they need them in the world. When the Lord summons the people of paradise to stand before him, he will say to them, ask what you desire. They will turn to the scholars who will say, ask him to enable you to see him. What in paradise is greater than that? All of these narrations make it clear that there is no rank after prophethood better than that of the scholars of the So I think it's pretty clear. So the idea is on the day of judgment there's intercession. Intercession is the Prophet holds al maqam azim in this, maqam mahmud. When we make the dua of adhan, that's maqam al-mahmud in the wa'adda. Give the Prophet the praiseworthy station that you promised him. It's a reference to the intercession. Because the Prophet will have the ability. People, maybe their scales will fall in a particular way. And the Prophet can come and say, Allah forgive this person. He's, he made a lot of mistakes or she made a lot of mistakes, but they're from my ummah. You know, Ya Allah, forgive them and they'll be forgiven. So the Prophet is the one who has the highest, strongest intercession in this way. So what he's saying in this is that after the Prophets comes the scholars, then the martyrs, shuhada, then the martyrs. Other people have that right on the Day of Judgment also, like the Hufad, people who memorize Quran, they also have a level of intercession on the Day of Judgment. Anyways, it's its own topic. Scholars that befriended of Allah. The Quran relates, Allah bears witness that there is no God but Him, as do the angels and those endowed with knowledge. Shahid Allahu annahu la ilaha illahu wal malaikata wa ulul ilmi qara'inu bin qis. In this verse, the prophets have not, have not been mentioned individually, but inclusively with the scholars. This is sufficient honoring of the scholars and that they have been mentioned in a way that includes the prophets. This is the basis of those who say, the scholars who act on their knowledge are the protected friends of Allah. 
Both Abu Hanifa and Ash-Shafi'i have said, if the scholars are jur- and jurists are not the protected friends of Allah, the awliya, then Allah has no such friends. Imam Ahmed said, the people of hadith are the abdal. Oh man, you know, open that one. The people of hadith are the abdal. Mm, it's even, even interesting that he uses this narration in this term. So the end note, it says, I'll read you the end note, with the, at the risk of getting off into a huge tangent. The end note says, the term abdal refers to an elite population of Allah's righteous servants who are present, present among every generation. They are a source of good and blessing for people. Whenever one dies, Allah sends another to replace him. This concept, as testified to by Imam Ahmed's utterance and by Ibn Rajab's citation, is accepted by the overwhelming majority of the scholars of the Sunnah. So if some of you have seen the Ertigrul series, some people have watched it, you know how sometimes Ibn Arabi, you find him all of a sudden in this little like gathering with these other shiuch, and you're like, what is going on here? Like all of a sudden in the middle of the forest, Ibn Arabi is chilling with like all these guys who, who knows where they came from, and they're just in this little circle, right? Yeah. The world is bigger than we think it is. So they call this Diwan al Awliyah. This is the Diwan. This is like the assembly of the, of the saintly people, the sages. And from there's different categories in that uh, in those gatherings, and one of them is the abdal. Don't shoot the messenger. It's Imam Ahmed's quote. Ibn Rajab is saying it. You know, don't come to me and be like, oh, you know, you guys are a bunch of weirdos. The same thing, Ibn Rajab. You know, the most conservative people you know in the community, they quote Ibn Rajab and Imam Ahmed. So, you know, it's, it's not me. Don't blame me. Imam Ahmed said, the people of Hadith are the abdal. The Prophet ﷺ said, Indeed, the Prophets do not leave money as an inheritance, rather they leave knowledge. Whoever seizes it has taken a bountiful share indeed. So knowledge is the heritage of the Prophets, which means that the scholars are the heirs to what the Prophets leave behind, namely beneficial knowledge. Whoever seizes it and prizes it has obtained a great fortune, which his companions are, can rightfully envy. Ibn Mas'ud saw a group of people studying in the Prophet's masjid. A man said, Why have they gathered? He said, They have gathered for the inheritance of Muhammad ﷺ. They are distributing it among themselves. That is their distributing knowledge. Once Abu Huraira headed toward the market, upon leaving, he said to his family, You abandoned the inheritance of Muhammad being distributed in the masjid and remain here. His heritage is the Quran, as well as the Sunnah that explains and makes clear its meanings. It is related in Sahih and Bukhari that Ibn Abbas was asked, Did the Prophet leave anything? He said, He did not leave anything except what is between the two covers of the book, meaning the Quran. It is related in Sahih and Bukhari and Sahih Muslim that Ibn Abu Awfa was asked, Ibn Abi Awfa, was asked did the Prophet bequeath anything, he said he bequeathed the Qur'an. The Prophet gave a sermon after the farewell pilgrimage and said, I am but a mortal being, the angel of death is about to come to me, and I will respond to his summon. I am leaving with you two weighty things. The first is the Book of Allah, in which there is guidance and light. Whoever seizes hold of it and takes it, he will be guided. Whoever lets it escape, he will go astray. It only mentioned the first. Did you notice that? So I left you two things. I only mentioned the first. So, for Sunni Muslims, there are two narrations of this hadith. So I'm just gonna, I have to make that disclaimer before someone says that this is a, like a Shia thing or something. In the Sunni hadith, there's two narrations. One of them is, I leave behind for you two things. The Book of Allah and my Sunnah. The Book of Allah and my Sunnah and my way, Prophet The other narration says, I leave behind for you two things, the Book of Allah and my family. 
صلى الله عليه وسلم وآله I don't know what to tell you, but when you read like the biographies of like the great great sages, you know, somehow it turns out that pretty much all of them are Ahlul So all of the big names you hear, you know, Sheikh Abul Hassan al Shadri, Sheikh Abul Qadir Jilani, all of these Imams, all of these people, all of the like spiritual masters. Very, very common for them to be Ahlul Bayt. Very common. Very common that they're from the family of the Prophet. So they say that, like, understanding the way of the family of the Prophet is part of understanding the Sunnah. And it's often in these great saintly people that you see it uh, in life, see how it's lived. Imam Ahmed relates that Abdullah bin Amr said, the Prophet ﷺ came out to us and said, I am the unlettered Prophet. He said this three times. He then continued, there is no Prophet after me. I have been given speech that is decisive and comprehensive. I have learned the number of the guardians of hellfire and the number of angels bearing the lofty throne. The faults of my nation have been wiped out. Therefore, listen well and obey me as long as I am with you. When I am taken away, you must adhere to the book of Allah. Hold as lawful that which it legislates as lawful and hold as unlawful that which it prohibits. Then he said, the prophets do not leave money as an inheritance, rather they leave knowledge. The prophets means by this that they do not leave anything except knowledge. This is consistent with the verse, Solomon was the heir of David, and his statement concerning Zechariah, and bestow upon me an heir who will receive my heritage and the heritage of the family of Jacob. What is intended here is the heritage of knowledge and prophecy, not material wealth. The prophets did not accumulate material belongings that can be left behind in worldly bequests. The Prophet said, Whatever I leave behind other than provision for, for my servants uh, and, maintain, and maintenance for my family, it is for charity. So he basically said, Whatever is not like just the amount that's needed to take care of my family and the people who are dependent on me, everything other than that is charity. He did not leave anything behind except a coat of armor, his weapon, his white mule, and a piece of land which he gave in charity. In a similar narration, it is mentioned that the Prophet did not leave behind anything except a single tool and land that he and his family used to grow their food. He gave it to the Muslims in charity. All of this indicates that the messengers were not sent to gather worldly possessions for their families. Rather, they were sent to call people to Allah, struggle in his path, disseminate beneficial knowledge, and leave that knowledge as a request for their communities. Abu Muslim and Khulani attributes the following saying to the Prophet Allah did not inspire me to collect wealth and be a merchant. Rather, he revealed to me, glorify the praises of your Lord and be among those who prostrate themselves and worship your Lord until death comes to you. Tirmidhi and others relate that the Prophet said, what do I have to do with the world? The similitude of myself in the world is like a rider. He seeks shade briefly under a tree, rises and moves on. Hence, the Prophet said, the religious scholars are the heirs of the Prophets. The prophets do not leave money as an inheritance, rather they leave knowledge. In this part of the hadith, two things are alluded to. First, the scholar is the true heir of the messenger. Just as the scholar has inherited the messenger's knowledge, it is fitting that he leave a heritage of knowledge as the prophets and Allah Muhammad did. The scholar's heritage is what he leaves behind through teaching, writing, and other endeavors which benefit people after him. The prophets and Allah Muhammad said, when the servant dies, his actions are cut off except for three things. Beneficial knowledge, continuous charity, or a righteous son who prays for him. 
If the scholar teaches one who acts on his knowledge after him, he has left behind beneficial knowledge and continuous charity. Teaching is a form of charity, as has been related previously from Mu'adh and others. Those people whom the scholar taught have a status equivalent to his righteous children. They pray for him. Therefore, they confer upon him all three of these distinctions because of the knowledge he left. Okay? So the person is a person of knowledge. All three of the beneficial knowledge, continuous charity, and a righteous son, all remain for that person. As for the second point, this is our son or daughter. As for the second point, the scholar does not leave behind any worldly thing, just as the Messenger of Allah, son of Allah, did not. This is the scholar's way, owing to his exactness following the prophets. This scrupulousness is encompassed in his following the Messenger of Allah, son of Allah, and his sunnah, turning away from the world, taking little from it, and being content with them. As for the second point, the scholar does not leave behind any worldly thing, just, the, just as the Messenger of Allah did not. This is the scholar's way, owing to his exactness following the prophets. This scrupulousness is encompassed in his following the Messenger and his sunnah, turning away from the world, taking little from it, and being content with that. Sahna Tustari used to say, Among the signs of the love of the sunnah is the love of the hereafter, dislike of the world, and not indulging in anything except sufficient provision for the hereafter. This is the epilogue, it's poetry. Epilogue is poetry. A poem on protecting knowledge. Ibn Hassan Abdul Aziz al said, They say to me that you are withdrawn, but they saw a man even more humiliated and withdrawn. I saw people who belittled any humble soul who drew near to them. Anyone who was exalted by pride, they received with honor. I gave not knowledge its due, and every time a craving for the world came to me, I used my knowledge as a staircase to attain it. When it was said, this is a fountain, I said, I see. But the unfettered soul will foolishly endure thirst. I strove not in the service of knowledge, nor as a servant of the needy souls I met. I sought instead to be served. Am I to be made wretched by the seedling I planted, harvesting only humiliation? If this is so, it would have been better to have sought ignorance. If only the people of knowledge had protected it, it would have protected them. If they had magnified it in their souls, they would have been magnified. To the contrary, they belittled it and thereby became despicable. They disfigured its face with their craving for the world, leaving it frowning and dejected. And finally, in the last, uh, a poem on repentance. Uh, I'm not going to read the appendix. I forgot there's an appendix. It's really good, though. All right, I'm just going to read with no comments. A poem on repentance and returning to Allah. The time has come to, for me to see after the darkness of ignorance. My old age is a morning that calls me to its dawning rays. The night of youth is short, so proceed deliberately. The morning is the end of the road for the night traveler. How have I been deceived by the world and its adornments, building my home on the crumbling ground at the edge of a precipice? A home whose transgressions remain, but whose delights perish. How wretched is such a home. The happy one is not one who is delighted by his worldly trinkets. Rather, the happy one is one saved from the torments of hell. I have awakened from my wickedness, fearful and trembling, for Allah knows my deeds, open and secret. If I hold my sins to be grave, and they fill me with despair, I can only hope that they will be eradicated by the one who alone can do so, the all forgiving.
five, six, seven minutes, inshallah. I'm just going to read it because otherwise, yeah, we should just finish. The appendix is on the abstinence of the early scholars. Malik ibn Dinar said, if you come to the scholar's house and do not find him, his house tells a story. You see his prayer mat, his copy of the Qur'an, and the washroom on the side of his house. You discern a trace of the hereafter. Allah. About Fudail ibn Iyad. Fudail used to say, beware of the worldly scholar so that he does not turn you away from the path of righteousness with his drunkenness. Many of your scholars, their clothes more closely resemble the clothes of Khusro and Caesar than those of Muhammad Muhammad did not erect tall buildings. Instead, knowledge was given to him and he dedicated himself to it. He also used to say, scholars are many, but wise men are few. The essence of knowledge is wisdom. Whoever is given wisdom has been given abundant good. Such was the state of the righteous scholars such as Hassan al-Basri, Sufyan al-Thawri, and Imam Ahmed. They were content with a little from the world to the point that they departed from it, not leaving anything except knowledge. This is, this is despite the fact that some of them used to wear nice clothes or eat decent food, removed from asceticism. About Hassan al-Basri, he used to eat meat every day. He used to buy a piece of meat for a half a dirham, cook it in a tasty broth, and share it with his family. He would feed anyone who came to him. He used to wear nice garments. Despite this, he was the most otherworldly of people. He wouldn't strive for any worldly thing. When people sat with him, they would leave divorced from the world. They did not know anyone who despised worldly people more than he. They used to visit him during his illness and found nothing in his house, great or small, except a cushion wrapped up around him. Ibn Aun said, Hassan monopolized otherworldliness for himself. He shared knowledge with the people. Hassan himself used to say, the scholar turns away from the world, longs for the hereafter, exerts himself in worship, and implements the sunnah of Muhammad About Sufyan al-Thawri, Sufyan al-Thawri was more austere in his dress than Hassan. One who did not know him would think he was a beggar upon seeing him. Despite the depth of his scrupulousness, if he found some lawful food, he would eat heartily from it. If he found nothing lawful to eat, he would swallow sand. He might go three days without eating anything, despite people offering him abundant wealth. If he became satiated from lawful food, he would increase his worship. He was the most otherworldly of people in his time. His gatherings were stripped of any worldly pretensions. No one was more humble than the sultans, kings, and wealthy in his gatherings. And no one more dignified than the poor and indigent. He was overwhelmed by the fear of Allah's wrath. When he was afflicted with the disease that would eventually kill him, his urine was carried to a doctor who said, There is no cure for this disease. Sadness and fear have shattered his liver. It is said that there was no one in his era more fearful of Allah than him, and no one more awestruck before Allah. When he died, one of the scholars said, O people of extravagance, consume the world at the expense of your religion. Sufyan has died. He meant by this that no one remained who inspired shyness and restraint. About Imam Ahmed, he was even more ascetic than Sufyan. He lived simply and patiently endured difficult conditions. His livelihood was from some stores which he inherited from his father. The income he took from them was less than 20 dirhams a month. He died and did not leave anything other than a few pieces of silver wrapped in a rag, the weight of which was less than half a dirham. He left a debt that was paid for from his stores, despite the abundant wealth offered to him by rulers. About Imam Ahya ibn Abi Kathir. Yahya ibn Abi Kathir was among the extremely knowledgeable righteous scholars. It was said, there does not remain on the face of the earth of the likes of him. He was well kept and well dressed, but when he died, he only left 30 silver coins which were used to pay for his burial shroud. About Imam Muhammad ibn Aslam al-Tusi. Muhammad ibn Aslam al-Tusi was among the other worldly righteous scholars. He died and did not leave anything except his garment and skull cap. They placed them on his beard. He also left a vessel for making ablution, which was given away in charity. The women gathered on their roofs during his funeral and said, This scholar who has passed from the world, his bequest is the few things on his beard. He isn't like our other scholars. They are slaves of their stomachs. 
One of them sits two or three years teaching and gains nothing but loss, benefiting only in worldly goods. About Imam al-Ghazali, Abbas ibn Murathad said, I heard our companion saying, more than 70,000 dinars came to Ghazali from the Umayyad rulers. When he died, he only left behind seven dinars. He had neither land nor a home. Abbas then said, we investigated and found that he spent it all in the way of Allah and on the poor. Allah in his book had described the scholars as possessing many characteristics. Among them are the fear of Allah, humility, and weeping. Also among them is belittling the world and turning away from it. He illustrates this in the story of Qarun. He came out before his people in all of his adornments. Those who desired the life of this world said, if only we were to have what Qarun was given. He, was a great, he has a great fortune indeed. And those who had been given knowledge said, woe unto you. Allah's good reward is better for those who believe and do righteous deeds, and only the patient son receive it. It was mentioned to Imam Ahmed that it was said to Ibn Mubarak, how does one know a truthful scholar? He said, he turns away from money and moves toward the hereafter. Imam Ahmed said, yes, such should be his state. Imam Ahmed used to rebuke scholars for loving the world and longing for it. He should, you should know that scholars are ruined. When scholars start aspiring for the world, they cause the ignorant to think ill of them and cause them to set up ignorant people as their leaders. Ali radiallahu anh a popular preacher and said to him, I will question you about an issue. If you do not answer correctly, refrain from preaching. Otherwise, I'll give you this gem. The preacher said, ask. Ali then said, what buttresses religion and what eradicates it? He said, scrupulousness is the buttress of religion and aspiring for the world eradicates it. Ali said, continue preaching. People like you are fit to do so. This question from Ali indicates that it is fitting for one who admonishes people to refrain from their possessions, not to covet wealth and provisions, and not to try to win their hearts. Rather, he should spend knowledge for the sake of Allah, and not ask the people for anything out of piety. This is one of the big problems, by the way, with making imams and stuff, like the go-to fundraisers for everything that relates to their own salaries. If you think about it, it's very, like, it's shameful that we've come to this. <laughs> you know, like... The main fundraiser for the project is the person who's getting paid by the project. Like, they can't feel good about that. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Ibn Majah relates that Ibn Mas'ud said, if scholars safeguarded knowledge and placed it with its proper people, they would have dominated their epoch. Instead, they expended it on, other world, on worldly people in order to obtain something of their possessions. These worldly people then scorned them. I heard your prophets and Allah and them say, whoever narrows his concerns into a single concern, let him be concerned with the hereafter. Allah will suffice him in his worldly affairs. One torn by his worldly concerns will not even notice how Allah is destroying him. It's almost done. One of the scholars among the successors donned his garment and prepared to visit a king. He took a mirror, looked into it, saw his graying beard and said, I'm worried about impressing the king and my beard is graying. He then took off his garment and sat down. Abu Hazm said, we experienced a brief time in our era when not a single scholar sought out a ruler. If a man was learned, he, would sat he was satisfied with knowledge and needed nothing else. In this situation, there is benefit for both parties. When the rulers saw that the scholars covered their faults, sat in their company, and begged for their possessions, they despised them, stopped taking their advice, and stopped seeking their knowledge. This led to the ruin of both, ruin of both parties. A desert Arab came to Basra and asked, who is the leader of this town? They said, Hassan. He inquired, with what does he rule? They said, the people need his knowledge, and he has nothing to do with their possessions. That is beautiful. MashaAllah, that is beautiful. With what does he rule? They said, the people need his knowledge, and he has nothing to do with their possessions. Hassan used to say, everything can be defaced, and the defacement of knowledge is greed. He also said, one who increases in knowledge and simultaneously increases in worldly longing will only increase in distancing himself from Allah, and Allah will increase in dislike of him. One day Hassan saw some of the Qur'an reciters at the gates of their palace. He said, 
You have wrinkled your foreheads, flattered, flattened your mules, and come here carrying knowledge to their doors. Now they will have nothing to do with you. If you were to stay in your homes until they sent for you, it would have been better for you. Leave, may Allah distance you from them. In another version it reads, Leave, may Allah separate between your spirits. You have flattened your mules, tucked up the ends of your garments, and disheveled your hair while you have sought their possessions. They will have nothing to do with you. You have disgraced the Qur'an reciters, may Allah disgrace you. I swear by Allah, if you were to ignore their possessions, they would have sought your knowledge. You have instead sought their possessions while they have shunned you and your knowledge. May Allah distance the one who distances himself. In summary, the scholar who does not defend his honor will not benefit from his knowledge, nor will others. As Shafi'i said, whoever recites the Qur'an, his value is amplified. Whoever records hadith, his proof is strengthened. Whoever learns jurisprudence, his status is ennobled. Whoever learns Arabic, his disposition becomes gentle. Whoever learns mathematics, his opinion will, become, will be copious. And whoever fails to defend his honor will not benefit from his knowledge. Shafi'i was hikim. He has a lot of beautiful statements like this. This is the end of what Ibn Rajab al-Hambali related in his treatise, The Heirs of the Prophets, and the last of our prayers is Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam wa sallam. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad ibn al-Qulubi wa dawaiha wa afiyatan abdani wa shifaiha wa nurul abasari wa diyaiha wa akutan abwaahi wa ghidaiha. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barik alayhi. Allahumma salli ala Sayyidina Muhammad salatan tunjina biha min jameel anwali wa laafat wa takhlilana biha jameel hajat. وتطهرنا بها من جميع السيئات وترفعنا بها عندك على الدرجات وتبلغنا بها أكثر الغايات من جميع الخيرات في الحياة وبعد الممات اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد الفاتح لما أغلق الخاتم لما سبق ناصر الحق بالحق بالهدي إلى صراطك المستقيم على آله حق قدره ومقتاله العظيم الصلاة والسلام عليك يا سيدي يا رسول الله الصلاة والسلام عليك يا سيدي يا رسول الله الصلاة والسلام عليك يا سيدي يا رسول الله اللهم علمنا ما نفعنا ونفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا عملا وعملا صالحا اللهم علمنا ما نفعنا ونفعنا بما علمتنا وزلنا عملا وعملا صالحا اللهم وفقنا لما تحبه وترضى وجعلنا من عبيدك السعداء وامتنا على كلمة الهدى اللهم وحد الصفوف وألف بين القلوب اللهم وحد الصفوف وألف بين القلوب اللهم ألهمنا طاعتك اللهم ألهمنا طاعتك وأكرمنا بمعرفتك ووفقنا إلى محبتك يا أرحم المحمين اللهم قرب إلينا كل ما يقربنا إليك وكل من يقربنا إليك وكل عامل يقربنا إليك اللهم بارك فينا وبين المؤلف بين القلوب والسفوف اللهم اجعل هذا الكتاب حجة لنا لا علينا اجعله حجة لنا لا علينا اجعله حجة لنا لا علينا يا رب العالمين يا الله يا الله يا الله هل نحن عبيد بين يديك نتوجه إليك ونستغفرك ونتوب إليك نطلب رضاك ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بك ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بك ولا حول ولا قوة إلا بك صلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد